Here they come! Hello, and welcome to episode 105 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average, or duff. I'm your host, Eric Moore, and this week we're teaming up with our sister show to look at the Doctor Who story, Robots of Death. Today, me and Ian Marchant will be looking at the special effects on the tale, and in two days' time, over on Blake Seven in character, we'll be discussing the guest stars in this Doctor Who story that went on to appear in Blake Seven. U.S. number 31, calling McMurdo. Come in, over. U.S. number 31, calling McMurdo. Urgent. Come in, over. Hello, Ian. Hello, Eric. Hello. Welcome back to Effectively Speaking. I know, it's been a while. Was it episode 100 was the last time. Episode 100, yes, um, which isn't five weeks ago this is episode 105 but obviously that wasn't five weeks ago because I've just had a little gap of a couple of weeks and now we're back again and uh, you're with me so thank you for yes, that no no problem no problem it's going to be interesting because I do the other podcast the Blake 7 podcast with you and um, the the format's slightly different isn't it so I'm gonna gonna have to try and remember what the way we do this right all right okay well I'll nudge you along I'll nudge you along um, as I say, welcome back, and welcome back. I, I was trying to think. It's your. Th- I think this is your third visit to Doctor Who on the show. Um, um, yeah, first... we did. We did the Green Death, didn't we? The the, yep. the wooden butterfly. Um, we've done William Hartnell and the Daleks. Yeah. And the, what was the other here one? we go. No, no, oh, this, this is, is it. This one. is your third, third one. one. Yeah. Right. So, so, so we've done Doctor Three, Doctor One. Here we are with Doctor Four today. Yes. Third time lucky. Yes. Third time lucky. Um, yeah, and as I said before on, on other um, Who episodes we've done, uh, yeah, Tom Baker's my favourite Doctor. So uh, so what a joy it was to research this uh, story for today. Yes, yeah, and it's, um, it's interesting with Doctor Who because it's been going on for so long. You sort of break it down into different bits, don't you? So you can have a favourite Doctor, but you can also have a favourite period that not necessarily is your favourite Doctor. So mm-hmm. I think the Hinchcliffe years that this falls into right towards the tail end but into i think that's the pinnacle of doctor who i think every all the stars aligned everything came into into being in that in that sort of couple of seasons and it was it was golden it's the the only time i can remember other than you know sort of previous to the 2005 um, comeback where at that period, it was almost cool to like Doctor Who. Everyone was sort of watching it, or your, your parents watched it, your aunts and uncles watched it, your friends watched it. And I don't think it ever sort of reached that point again until probably David Tennant, you know, Christopher mm. and David Tennant times. So, yeah, I think this is, a, this is a, a, a great story in a great period of Who. Yeah, I mean, if I look at my Doctor Who DVDs on the shelf, that's a solid run of brilliant oh, stories yeah. when you look along the Hinchcliffe years along there like that. Yeah, it, it, I mean, I, I've been watching a sort of a few Doctor Whos. So I come and go on watching the Whos because I've got so much other stuff to watch. Um, so I've been a, a while, sort of a dry period on Who, where I've, I've not watched them to death, but they've 
I've watched other things instead of. And then a couple of weeks back, I thought, oh, no, I want to start watching Who again. And of course, it's straight to this period. Mm. You know, interspersed, yep. interspersed with a little heart note to, you know, just to remind you where it started. But uh, yeah, it's a good, good period, this. Yeah, and and a cracking story. I love this Ooh, story. Yeah. Um, um, it's 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 very hard to fault. I mean, we're gonna, I'm sure, mention a couple of faults on the special effects yeah. today. But uh, in of itself, I, I I think this is a fabulous story. Yeah, there, I mean, there's there's one bad. Well, te- I, I I think it's bad. It might just be the way that actor acts. But there's one let down acting person on this which i think is is the weakest cast member and, who, who are you who are you uh, thinking Zilda. of oh yeah 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 she, she just, mm. yeah she did, like when she's when she's saying uh, that she found out that Yuvanov was the captain on her when her brother got killed and she's on the speaker and it's like oh oh no yeah. no that it's is really poor. not good everyone else i think sparkles like this is a glorious cast um and and Tom Baker and Louise Jameson are at the absolute top of their game. It's I really think. weird though, because apparently Tom Baker didn't like Louise Jameson yeah. to begin with, you know. So, and there was animosity from him to her, but you would not pick up on it no. by, well, by th- watching this story. At this point, at this point, Tom Baker really didn't like anyone, did he? he <laughs> by all accounts, he was a, a, a handful and a half to work with. But yeah, he 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 thought. When Sarah Jane left, he didn't want a companion. He wanted to, the Doctor to be on his own. And so I think anyone coming in as the companion would have faced a tough time. But yeah, he, he, would, he would do fairly what you would now deem terrible things mm. <laughs> behind the scenes to try and put her off and to, you know, to, to screw up her acting. But to be fair to Louise Jameson, total professional. Real, I mean, she's such a good... She's probably one of the... In classic Q, she's probably one of... Well, I think she is the strong, the best actress, mm. technical actress that played a companion, mm. which is saying some because there's been some good companions. But I think she was, she was spot on. And you look at what she does with the character and the way she acts it, and it's, it's perfectly played. Mm. But for, yeah, fair dues to her. It. It you wouldn't think, you would think they were friends because they there's a definite um, sort of camaraderie between the two characters, isn't there? Mm. They they come across that they're they're enjoying travelling together. Yeah, and you're right. She is a brilliant actress, and she, is, yeah. she she's responsible for you know one of my favourite ever Doctor Who scenes, which we'll be using for the audio clip in this, which yeah. is when the Doctor explains to her how the TARDIS can be bigger yes. on the inside than on the outside. Magic. I know, I know. There's no such thing as magic. Exactly. To the rational mind, nothing is inexplicable, only unexplained. So, explain to me how this TARDIS is larger on the inside than the out. Hmm? All right, I'll show you. It's because insides and outsides are not in the same dimension. Which box is larger? That one. now which is larger that one but it looks smaller well that's because it's further away exactly if you could keep that exactly that distance away and have it here the large one would fit inside a small one that's silly that's transdimensional engineering a key time lord discovery 
that's silly. Yeah, that's sums silly. up a thousand fans. Yeah, <laughs> that's the audience speaking yeah. there, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. I, I was sort of watching, watching it. Um, it's one I've watched a lot, but then when you watch them to to make notes and to do podcasts, you sort of you notice more in it than you do when you're just passively watching it. And I was sort of I noticed a few things continuity errors like the doctor's scarf was driving me mental some scenes he hasn't got it at all he's not wearing it and then the very next scene he's wearing it and it's like how did this even happen did he put the <laughs> scarf to, you know how but that 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 sort of got my head in but the other thing i noticed was some of the little bits that louise jameson puts in for the character leader that are obviously not in the script like the bit where they the um the the robot puts him in the the room with the comfy chairs mm. Um, and she sees the chair and she goes and jumps on it with her yes. knees, smiling like that. And it's perfect, perfect acting for the, the childlike character that Leela was. You know, a superbly intelligent uh, person, Leela, but totally uneducated mm. because she came from a, you know, a, a backward society. Um, but yeah, it's just a little bit and it's like, it adds so much to it. Yep, totally agree. And of course, you know, her introduction story was the one just before this. This yes, was uh, yeah, the, the, the Face story, of Evil, yeah. uh, written by Chris Boucher, uh, yes. as is this story. The, these were his first two Who stories. Um, so confident, though, you wouldn't think no. he was a, you know, he was new to all this. No, at not that at all. Point. But yeah, so confidently written. It was also Philip Hinchcliffe's uh, penultimate story as producer yes, yeah. um, and Michael E. Bryant's final contribution to the series as a director. So, hmm. Yeah, My Michael E. Bryant's got a lovely story on the, the DVD extras, hasn't he, where um, um, David Williams is, in, is brought into the studio on one of the days of filming uh, sort of to see because he was taken over and... Uh, the the director got Tom Baker to start slagging the script off in front of the the, the new boy, the new man in charge. Yeah. Brilliant. It is. All right, well, let's get into it. Let's get into the story then. Um, we're talking about the special effects in their entirety yes. of the story rather than one particular scene um, because there are special effects in this story, not too many, uh, but enough um, to have something to talk about today. And uh, the first thing we see um, in episode one is a special effect. We've got a, yes, a, a yeah. rocky landscape, um, um, which looks nice. You know, that's obviously a painted background, uh, sky in the background there and everything. It looks nice, but alas, this is the problem. If I'm going to fault anything apart from Zilda in this, is they've made the mistake of filming in real time. They haven't used high-speed cameras and then slowed it down. So what we're just about to see where you see the sand miner pushing rocks, very often that's in real time, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it's also, I know they, they would build these models as large as they feasibly could because, again, the smaller you get in model size, the harder it is to get scale. Mm. And I think this could have been done with being a bit larger, the sand uh, miner model, because it does... It lacks detail in places, and like you say, the way they film it, it doesn't. You don't really get a sense of scale with it mm. to the to the scale it's meant to be, because they 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 have that little um, CSO bridge insert, mm -hmm. don't they, on the front of it? So it's meant to be a massive, great vehicle, but it doesn't don't quite work. The landscape though is brilliant. I love the landscape. Yeah, I think that yeah, that's that's a nice. I don't know whether that was made for this or whether it was like a stock BBC 
model and you know got used on other stuff but it, yeah it's really nice. I don't know I don't know but uh, it, it's I like the design of the sand miner um, it's yeah. a, this very slabby design isn't it you know um, yes. but you're right yeah we we needed more greeblies on there yeah. um, it, it always reminded me you'll you'll know the name of this I can't remember what he was called you remember in the uh, row warriors you had the big psychotic uh, yeah yeah you're with, you're with the, like the you're, you're, you're talking about um, is. Charlie is the big robot, and it's the yeah. big mech wars, isn't there? You, they've yes. got almost like Thunderbird-style crab logger type, you know, robots which go amok and start destroying cities, don't they? What was yeah, it called? It, it was in Robusters, wasn't it? Yeah, it, and it always reminds me of that—the sort of the T-headed, where the bridge is, that sort of thing. And it, it again, nice, really nice design. Um, Everyone sort of says this one they did that obviously um, they'd sort of read Dune and it was, mm. but the the description in Dune don't really match no. what we see on screen. So I think it's more a, a desert. As soon as you see a desert planet and mining, you think yeah, Dune in it. But I don't. I think that's been overegged that similarity. I'll tell you what, more than June, I'm getting Thunderbirds because it's yes, the way yeah. the camera's down low, the camera uh, and things are going left to right, moving those rocks out the way. You've got, as I say, you've got the crab logger in one of the Thunderbird stories, and yeah. there's also a road-making thing, isn't there? Yes. A, a, a yes. device. Yeah. That was big and slabby like this as yes. well, wasn't it? Big yeah. and slabby, that describes it. Well, it'd be interesting to take this bit of footage and put some Thunderbirds incidental music over it. I bet it would fit mm. perfectly, you're right. Well, that's a nice idea. I wonder if I could do it and put it on my YouTube yeah. channel. Well, I might have a go at that. Um, the oh, bridge, yeah, I do like the bridge. Um, yeah. I like the fact that it's it's got this quite well done CSO insert of the uh, of, of, of you know the robot crew on the bridge in that close yes. up. Yeah. Look, looking at again what you were saying just then about you know with podcasting eyes you see things differently, and I was looking at that and I was thinking. Before you actually see the robots in the bridge, where you've got like a slit window, it was almost like yeah. a Cylon window. Yeah. It reminded me of a Cylon yeah. uh, face for some reason. Yeah, it's that slit eye slot, isn't it? Mm. Mm. But yeah, the, the CSO is nice. It doesn't. I don't think it works 100%. The CSO never seems to. But yeah, it, it gives you a nice link between the externals and the internals, which you never really got on Doctor Who a lot. You would no. see a lo sometimes a lovely model. But there was never anything to link it to what was happening inside, and I think this adds this adds to it because you're even though it's not, you know, hand on heart, it's not 100% successful, but you're drawn into it, so your brain immediately goes, okay, this is happening on yeah. this machine, yeah. and and all through it, you're thinking they're on this machine. So later on, when it breaks down and it starts to sink, you're, you, I think, yeah, it it adds to it, it adds something to it that they, if they'd have just left it off, I, you would have lost something, I think. Yeah, because when you do go inside, you never, I'm pretty sure you never see out of the, that window, do you? You never see that again. We no. see in, and we, and we go into the bridge, we're just about to go into the bridge, but you yeah. never see that window um, again, but you know it's there. No, because if, if you turned around to view that window, yeah, if you turned around to view that window from the inside, you'd just see the cameras, wouldn't you? Because that's the, that's the fourth wall of the set that doesn't exist. Exactly but, right. Uh, yeah, you... You at least your your brain fills in a lot of stuff that it for that doesn't it? It automatically fills in. So when you're viewing a bridge, you're thinking, "Oh, I'm 
I'm viewing this from just in front of the window. Mm, mm. That's what which I always doesn't exist. Yeah, which doesn't exist. Yeah. But yeah. no, that's it's what I found. Stuff. Yeah, but that's mm. what I found startling in the uh, new Star Trek films, where the camera would go up over the Enterprise and in through the window and onto the bridge, because we're just not used to yeah. uh, uh, seeing inside the Enterprise that way. Yeah, we're not used to that. Yeah, I think I, the only other time I can think of that did it before this was um, for the the Star Trek The Cage and The Menagerie where well, you've got Captain Pike's Enterprise and it sort of swoops over the saucer and then not again not quite convincingly goes into the top of the bridge it goes in through the bubble uh, doesn't it at the so top. it's obviously yeah it's, an, it's yeah that's it yeah and again doesn't quite work <laughs> like this one but it your brain fills in a lot mm, mm. Well, we do go inside. At this point, we do go inside, and, and on the bridge, you have got the robots that actually do the majority of the work on the sand miner. What do you think of them as a yes. design? The robots of death! Yeah. <laughs> I, I love them. I think they're brilliant. Mm. I, I like, the, yeah, I like the, um, the Art Deco look to everything, the costumes, the robots. This is a very fleshed-out and believable society. And the robots are perfect. And it's true. If you were going to be stuck on board with robots, you would want them to look nice. Mm. Mm. And I'll tell you what I like about them as well. What, it's not just the design of them. It's not just the look of them. In the, is that there, you don't have any C-3PO style jerkiness to their movements. They are quite smooth walking, quite no. elegantly moving robots. They're, 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 their moves match their looks, don't they? Yeah, they... They could have easily played it in the old Mechanical Man, like you say, the C-3PO style. But I like the fact that their movement is slow and smooth and, you know, it, it fits the look of the character. It's, they're very elegant, the way they move. Mm, mm. And, of course, you've got to remember, this, this was actually uh, transmitted in January 77. So this is months before Star Wars came out. But you had yeah. uh, humanoid robots very politely speaking, almost butler-style voices, um, not jerkily like uh, Anthony yeah. Daniels chose to do it. Of course, it's a coincidence. At this time, they were that they, they were they, uh, presumably they had finished making yeah. um, Star Wars. So it's just a coincidence that in the same year you had a English butler, well-mannered, well-spoken humanoid robot. Just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah and, and a desert planet, and a large sand crawler. Oh, I. Where the robots are, yeah, it's a, a few, yeah. Do you know what? I'd, I had not made that connection. It is. It's yeah, a blooming. Sa- yeah, it's a sand crawler <laughs> on a desert planet. Yeah, Star Wars. Star Wars rips off Doctor Who. <laughs> no, it's just a galactic coincidence. That's what it is. That's what it is. It is. Yes. Yeah. All right. Well, we fast forward to the next effect sequence, which. Luckily, it's on a TV monitor, so you, you don't see it too much. It's when the TARDIS is picked up and removed out of the scoop. Yes, yeah. Um, by a claw that Which looks quite, like it... quite uh, clever to keep it on a monitor. Yes, yeah. I think maybe that was the reason, you know, because um, yeah, it looks yeah. like one of those uh, seaside claw machines, doesn't it, to pick a teddy up or something. Yeah, but I, I've never been what's in one of those machines yet where it's such a, a cool prize as a TARDIS in it, though. But. Or, or could actually grip something and lift it up and not drop it. Yeah, that's very true, yes. Yeah, you know, normally they... Uh, that would that would have been funny, actually, if they'd have got halfway up the screen with the TARDIS and then the claws went, bip, and it drops it. <laughs> that would have been quite funny. 
and and it, and when the TARDIS lands, it's just amongst some old tat, you know, key rings and uh, and outdated yeah. suits and things yeah. like that. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, special effects wise, uh, we we do keep going outside. We do keep seeing the sand miner. Um, occasionally, it's blasting air uh, with these little jets that it's got on the front. Yeah. A bit too big for the scale, though. I, I think the jets of air don't yeah, match got, the model. Yeah, that, I mean, like we've said before, that water, fire, and air, you, you, can't, you can't sort of miniaturize the elements, can you? You mm. have to have the biggest you can get away with. Um, the other thing I never, as a, as a sort of kid watching this, I never really understood was what those screws at the front were meant to do. Because um, you never sort of see them doing anything. They're spinning away like mad, but they never really seem to pull the the sand or the rock up do they well that's that 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 is the means of uh movement they're moving by using those screws oh right oh is that me- ah right yeah oh, I, I just assumed they were like drawing the sand in or something oh no 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 ah. no that no, that's how they move i've got a that little bit sense, about yeah. that on behind the scenes okay ah right excellent yeah um and really, the only other uh, special effects parts are the sand miner sinking in the sand. Yeah, yeah. Um, which isn't too convincing because, again, it's it, it, it's almost real time and uh, scale wise, it, it it doesn't really give a lot. Yeah, it doesn't. Um, again, not wholeheartedly. It's enough for, for it's enough to work, but it, it's not. It doesn't give you the whole picture. You've got to fill in some of the blanks with that you when it's sinking. Mm, mm. Um, and the only other special effects thing really in there is uh, when you have a destroyed robot, when you see inside the, 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 the head. But that's really quite well done. Yeah, considering what Doctor Who normally does with robots, which is bring in a load of old circuit boards and, you know, uh, resistors and capacitors and things. It, uh, it's alien enough that it, you can you, you're not going oh that's obviously something else but it's not too alien that it's like you know remember when uh, in android invasion when sarah's android face mm. falls off and it's like bits of sponge <laughs> and it's yeah. Like, yeah that don't work but this i like this i like the insides of the the robots it's a criticism we've given quite a few times on blake seven in character you know when you have the insides of something futuristic yes. and it's old resistors and capacitors and stuff like that isn't it yeah, we um, we often see on Blake Seven that they just—it's almost like they—they they just get an old stereo system and smash it up, <laughs> and pour the bits into a box and say that's a computer or that's a robot, isn't it? Mm, indeed. All right, all right. Well, that's it. I mean, um, special effects-wise, there's not much else to speak about, is there? No, it's quite. I mean, Doctor Who at this point, it was it was more reliant on character than trying to ram special effects in, wasn't it? Mm. it you had enough to to give you the basics, but it was all about character and the acting. Mm. And uh, I think that's why it's not aged as badly as some of the 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 John Pertwee's, where they were trying to push the boundaries of special effects, mm. which only only works for the era it's in. And then five years later, even it looks horribly dated because that's no longer the boundary of special effects. Mm. Mm. All right. Okay. Well, behind the scenes. All right. Behind the scenes. I got quite a bit actually for for for, for not much uh, in the way of uh, duration on special effects. I've got quite a bit. All right. Right. Okay. So 
Um, I, and I don't know how much of this you're aware of, Ian, but uh, um, here we go. Um, there are a few references to other science fiction works in this uh, in this story. Taron Capel, for one, is a reference to Carol. I've got to say it right. Carol Capek, who was the person first credited with coming up with the word robot. Yes. Yeah. It's. Uh... Um, the the usage then wasn't what we think of robot now, but yeah, it's the first or, or the earliest recorded use that can be found of the word robot, mm, isn't it? Mm. Uh, Yuvanov's name uh, is a reference to Isaac Asimov. Yep. And uh, Paul is a reference to science fiction writer Paul Anderson. I I always thought it was Paul as in Paul, Paul Anderson, not Paul yeah. as in swimming yeah. pool, but Paul Anderson. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's P-O-U-L or something P-O-U-L, like that. P-O-U-L, yeah. An unusual spelling, yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um, and then robophobia. Yeah, yeah robophobia. Um, it's funny you mentioned yes. ro- ro- Robusters earlier. There was a story in that where uh, somebody had robophobia, but yeah. in this it's called Grimwade Syndrome, and that's an inside joke because Peter Grimwade, who was a production assistant and uh, directed some of the film scenes in this story, uh, it's named after him. Yes, they, they used to do that a lot, didn't they? Like the Bennett Oscillator mm-hmm. and the TARDIS and things like that. But um, this is interesting that, that they, we sort of, we're so used now to um, body language being a recognised thing that, of course, when this came out, it wasn't. Mm. It, was st- it was quite a new idea. And so the doctor's sort of saying in it that it's just a theory that some people can... Now, you watch it now and you thought, well, it, we accept body language completely yes you know it's we're animals after all and we, we work in a certain way but back then of course it was brand new and that's what i loved about doctor who back then was like as kids we would have been talking about this the next day and it's new things like that that it just stirred your imagination about things um which is i don't think kids get that much these no. days do they everything seems to be dumbed down a bit too much uh, exactly yeah well, well, special effects, they were overseen by Richard Conway. Um, I don't know if you know the name Richard Conway? Um, doesn't ring a bell. Okay. Well, he had previously worked at Century 21 on the Jerry Anderson shows. Um, he worked on Thunderbirds and Captain Scarlet. Right. And I'm sure the way this, the, 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 um, the uh, miner, the sand miner moves is his experience on Thunderbirds. Because that is a very Thunderbirds looking shot. Very, very much so. That does explain a great deal, yeah. Mm, yeah. But uh, he left, after Captain Scarlet, he left and to work on special effects on uh, both the Battle of Britain and uh, Diamonds Are Forever. Oh, right. Mm. And uh, previously, uh, for the BBC, he had already worked on Planet of the Spiders and The Seeds of Doom. Right, Seeds of Doom, very good. Mm. Planet of the Spiders, uh, some of the effects were very good, some weren't. No, back very, to the CSO. Very, uh, uh, variable effects in that one. Yeah. On, yeah. On, on Robots of Death, his assistant was Chris Lawson, and they spent four days at the Ealing Studios doing all the miniature work here. Only four days. Mm. It's amazing, really. Yeah. And you said earlier about, you know, is it a stock landscape? I don't think it was. Uh, it, it was made at Ealing, and it was pretty big for a Doctor Who production. It was coming in at 20 foot square. That's fairly large. It, 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 it worries me that they used to build all these things from scratch then for each program. You'd thought they'd have had some sort of facility for keeping all this stuff, just in case. Mm. They need it, you know, use it on something else and save that cost. Mm, mm, 
Mm. Now, the, the, the actual sand miner itself, I think the reason why the landscape was 20 by 20 is the sand miner looks to be quite big. I've got one photo, which I'll put on Facebook. Mm. Um, it, it must be about six foot long, something like that. Um, and it was very busy. Yeah, into which is... Sorry? That's fairly big for a miniature, yeah. It is, um, but it, it was quite busy. I was say, it's fairly big for a Doc 2 miniature at the time, yeah. Yeah, because I think it had to be big because you've got, as you say, these four drilling screws at the front, and uh, you had to have all the air hoses for the air jets as well in there. Yeah, yeah, I suppose that makes sense. Now, I don't know what it was made of. Um, I, I've, I've tried to find out what it was made of. It doesn't look like it's wood. I can't believe it's wood. Maybe it was wood and then you know uh cast in fiberglass or or something i don't know it it doesn't look heavy enough the way it's moving to be solid wood no it could i suppose it could have been wood like you say clad in uh abs or fiberglass or mm. even uh thin aluminium sheet something mm. like that but yeah it doesn't it doesn't look wooden no no i and the reason I started thinking, oh, that doesn't look wooden, isn't so much from watching the story. It's watching one of the extras on the DVD where you've got quite a lot of uh, test footage of the model. And you see an awful lot more of the model yeah. than you do on the transmitted version. Yeah, which again is unusual. Normally they would put on as much stuff as they could film, mm. um, presumably for cost and, and, you know, bulks out of running time. So perhaps that, that shows that this one had a, a, a long enough, more interesting script that they didn't need to pad it out too yeah, much. Yeah. I'll tell you what's good about that footage in, in, is that you see other shots of it. There's a terrific one where you're looking towards it and the camera is up looking down on it and there's long passing shots along it. Um, so you get more of an idea of the size of it and what's going on. But I tell you what, I couldn't see one kit piece, not one model kit part anywhere on that model. No, well I think because we're pre-Star Wars, aren't we? Mm. So kit bashing and bunging stuff on. I mean, you had you had it to a certain extent in on Thunderbirds where they would use girder parts and things like that. Mm. But I think most Doctor Who models up to this point were shaped wood or cast parts weren't they they didn't they they didn't busy up the you know the surfaces of these things yet mm. i think it was star wars that basically uh pushed them in that direction well martin bauer at the same time i mean you know he he, he was working on space 1999 that had just finished but you know yeah. martin bauer had an awful lot more money and time than um you know the bbc special effects department yeah yeah i i mean i don't know whether you know how much um it costs to do this footage or how much the sound no, I've got no cost. money no they were very cagey weren't they the BBC on mm. saying what things cost yeah yeah um, now the set design was by Ken Sharp okay yeah and costume design was going to be John Bloomfield but eventually Elizabeth Waller got the job and before Ken actually started on uh, you know designing everything up he went down to Cornwall to look at real-life mining techniques and because of that visit to Cornwall, that's when they come up with this idea of the sand miner having these things called Archimedes screw devices. Right. So, so yeah, yeah. From seeing them in use in a mine, that made him have the idea of having them rather than tracks or anything like that. Yeah. Also, also I think on this one, it was unusual from what, judging by the making of on the DVD, 
what was unusual as well was that the the costume design the set design and the special they all very closely worked with each other mm. which it sounds strange but up to that point they would all be working separately mm. which is presumably why on some shows you think the these disparate elements don't really work together but the overall look of it all fits mm. and i think that was because they they had regular meetings and they worked together to make sure that that everything had the same sort of uh, aesthetic yeah um which does, doesn't happen a lot in doctor who to be honest no that it was definitely the point here um ken did work very closely with elizabeth and yeah. the way the interiors look is all down to ken and it's because Ken thought the script was rather dull, okay, and yeah. he thought, oh, this is just going to be boring if if it's just silver corridors. So he thought he would yeah. jazz things up and make the sets rich visually, okay, and decided to go with an Art Deco look to it. Um, and apparently, he was also influenced by Metropolis and yeah. uh, the 1954 version of Twenty Thousand Leagues Under the Sea. And I can totally see that in some of the yes. room designs. Yeah, it's, the, the, it looks more like a, a luxury liner inside, doesn't it, than a, a working mine mm. vehicle. Mm. Uh, but that fits this this very lazy, uh, sort of work-shy society where they rely on robots and to do everything, and it's all about pleasure, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. It's, 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 it's really well well thought-out society. Yeah. And... While he was coming up with these ideas, he was talking to Elizabeth, and that was making her think, well, you know, if you've got an Art Deco interior, let's have the robots match it. Yeah. And, and, and apparently her costumes were based on small wooden and ivory Art Nouveau figures from the turn of the century, okay? Um, other inspirations were uh, from Egypt and Rome, um, and the uh, rather striking um, eye makeup that everybody has in it. Um, in 76, that was a style that was becoming popular uh, with women. So Elizabeth went, well, you know, in the future, men and women can have this eye makeup. That's where that comes yeah, from. And it, and it works. I mean, I'm not, I'm not normally a great one for when they start doing makeup effects. I mean, what immediately springs to mind is the space rats on Blake 7. Um, I'm not usually a great fan of that, but th this is it's so because it matches the aesthetic for everything else in it, matches the look of the robot. The the makeup that everyone's wearing really enhances the look of the program, mm. rather than you're thinking, oh god, they put makeup on everyone. It it, it really works well. I I do like it. It must have been wonderful just walking onto the set, you know. Ah, oh, yeah, it must have been eye opening. I mean. The robots themselves are just so gorgeous, you know. Who wouldn't want a full-size suit just sat in the corner of the room, you know? They're, they are works of art, mm. I, I really think so. Well, let's get into the works of art. I uh, thought you might be interested in this because, you know, you are a uh, costume maker yep. uh, yourself. Um, they were made by Elizabeth Waller and consisted of a green linen undersuit with quilted arms and lace-up front, okay? Yep. Uh, elasticated trousers... Uh, along with a sleeveless tabard with a high collar, slippers with a lurex sock covering, and a hinged fiberglass number plate. Right? So, right. so that's the outfit. The actual uh, heads of the robots, um, the original was molded by Ken himself. Ken Sharp himself um, modeled the head, um, a, a rough one. That was then passed across to a freelance sculptor by the name of Rose Garrard. 
who, who refined it. I, do you know what they used for the hair on the back of the... Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it was plasticine. It was plasticine sheet. That, because where, I don't know whether... I mean, people of our age will remember that plasticine used to come in a flat sheet of different colours. And it was... Um, it was like piped. It almost looked piped. So it was like ribbed, wasn't it? Yeah, ribbed. That's the word I'm looking for. And and so they wanted that look. So they just used that sheet, just overlaid, yes. to give them that, which is so clever. And it's one of those things that for years you look at it and you think, how did they do that? How did they do that? And then when you finally find out, you go, Uh-oh. oh, it's bloody obvious. <laughs> Why did I never see that before? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well. The- the, the, the heads were two parts. They were moulded in fibreglass, yep. uh, the lower half um, being held in place by Velcro. Um, I didn't know this, but uh, I, it's hard to see, so I, I, I'm not surprised I didn't notice it. But uh, the, the, the actors' necks aren't covered. They're actually no, wearing I, makeup. Yeah, I noticed that the, the, the time to spot it is when um, the, the robot's listening outside the door mm. with his head turned to one side. And I. I, I noticed it the first time this time watching it on uh, DVD and uh, it was like oh they've just painted the guy's neck mm. and, but you don't notice it when they're straight on so it works mm. you know and they did that to be fair they did that with um, Maria in Metropolis didn't yes. they so parts of her were just painted skin um, so yeah you can get away with it yeah, it works it, it, it was all to aid ventilation because that's the only way yeah. <laughs> part of the body could, that could actually breathe was uh, was their necks yeah well you think that that's quite heavy quilted material mm. then you're screwed into a helmet it must have been very hot mm. and they wouldn't have had technology I, then to put fans into the helmets or anything no like that. oh no they wouldn't have been would, wouldn't have been able to do that they wouldn't have had the size fans to do mm. it um, I don't know if you remember, whether you ever got along to Longleat. You remember Longleat? I did, but Doctor back in the eighties, and I barely remember it. Yeah, they had a they had a, a one of the Vox there, and I, I was looking at the suit, and it's so, I mean it's amazingly well made the suits, but the the state of it was just shocking. It was really been left to, to deteriorate. Um, which is such a shame. I think some. I think now they've been. The, I think is it three suits remain, mm. which they've restored and and you know look after now. But yeah, at one point they were just. But no one cared about them, did they? It's so sad. Do you follow that Facebook page? Uh, the guys that are making full size replica Doctor Who costumes. They've made a Zygon. They've just been doing Ice Warriors. Do you follow that page? Um, I don't. I can't say that I do. I should have to have a look for it now. I mean, I've, there's a few few Facebook friends I've got, like uh, James Burgess and that, who who make uh, Doctor Who full size props and things like that. And I mean, they're very very talented now. The the guys that do this. That they. I mean, they probably put more effort into making replicas than the BBC did to make the originals. Mm. <laughs> to be honest. Um, I remember in the in the sort of must have been the early eighties. Uh, my brother and I discovered fiberglass. I think he had been he had bought a kit car and we discovered fiberglass matting. It was like this was revolutionary. So we had a go at making like a cyber helmet. And I made I tried to do a, a Vok robot. I didn't get very far because um, we were no good at working in fiberglass. It's an art. Um, but yeah, so I, I think every every Doctor Who fan goes through a period of wanting to make a Vok robot. Mm. Th- or even a dumb yeah. D84. <laughs> yeah. I think it, it's only a matter of time before those guys on that Facebook page do it. Um, I'll put a link to yeah. Um, yeah, to, 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 to it on the Facebook I'll, page, I'll and I'll send that to you shortly, because they are very talented guys. As I say, yeah. they've just done a run of Ice Warrior um, costumes, which are 100% authentic. Yeah. Um, they've done Zygons. They're just starting. Is, is it the Vords? 
the black William Hartnell the ones. Oh, yes, yeah. the, the frog suit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Frog suit with a weird so, helmet. So yeah. they're not going for the obvious ones all the time, no. you know. So, uh, yeah. I suppose if you're going to do something like that, you might as well do something that you want to do, innit, rather than... There you go, yeah. Because who's going to recognise it other than the fellow Doctor Who fan, you know? <laughs> One day we're going to go to a convention yeah. and you're going to have, you, you, you know, um, screen accurate costumes all over the place from Doctor Who. It would be fantastic, yeah. wouldn't it? Well, it will. I mean, especially with... I mean, I, I, 3D printing has now come on so much that, especially in America, a lot of people 3D printing helmets mm. and things like that, and even suits of armour. And and so, yeah, the I mean, part of me misses the old days of trying to cobble something together, but the stuff you see at conventions now, now it probably looks better than the original... Uh, actual costumes did because if, if you've ever seen if you've ever been to a doctor Who exhibition the costumes and the props they were made for to do a certain thing for a certain amount of time so they were never made to be looked at from every angle or to be looked at closely or to be seen in broad daylight yeah. so they tend to be a bit shabby anyway so yeah i can imagine a lot of these these um fan-built ones are actually better made yeah. than the original well lawn peterson was at a convention and somebody brought along uh, to show him uh, the escape pod from the first Star Wars film on the Tantive V4 yeah. and he said that is far better than the one we made because of course modern uh, studio you know, you know recreation people have time you know <laughs> they have yeah. time and they have money and, and, and they can finesse it down can't they whereas these poor guys you know in their workshops are chucking this stuff out to a very very tight deadline aren't they yeah, I mean, you know, like like you say, um, talking to someone like Martin Bauer and some of the the stories that he comes out with, where they were literally changing things on the fly, mm -hmm. weren't they? It was, or making stuff on the fly, you know, on the day of filming, sort of thing. Yeah, it's. I do. I, I mean, I, I admire the, the the prop makers and that these days. Oh. I think it's. I still like myself uh, uh, an old school uh, salvage prop where you've made it out of something that you found because it looks like it. But I do, I do admire the uh, the totally accurate stuff that people are doing now. Mm, mm, mm. All right, I've got one more fact before we get on to the rating um, from Richard Conway, who said, and I found this bit of information after I've watched the story. I've got to go back and check it. He's, I've got a quote from him where he says, "We also made a series of prop bombs out of modelling stands." stands which came with the airfix kits i'm um, now i'm presuming they're those um you know those triangular clear plastic stands you know that airfix planes came with but i yeah. can't remember bombs in robots of death looking like that um no i can't think of it i mean the only the only triangular props like that might be you know the 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 survey charges that they used to blow up the robots, mm. they're like, but that'd be too big for yeah. an airfix stand. And surely if it was an airfix stand, you and I mm. would be going, that's an airfix stand, you know? They're very distinctive, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, you would hope, yeah. Yes, yeah. Oh, I, I, I've got yeah. another... Unless he's disguised it that much that it's, you know, no longer looks like it. Well, I've got another, another excuse to go back and watch the story again, so uh, hooray. Um, all right, well... Yeah, you don't need an excuse. I mean, no, 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 not at all. All right, um, so then, rating... What would you give it then, Ian? Um, I think this is a solid... Ooh, I'd say seven and a half or eight. Let's let's go eight. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. I'd say it's a solid eight. Because it might not look like the latest big blockbuster film, but when for this period in Doctor Who, these were good effects, believe mm. me. I remember as a kid, this, this was impressive stuff. Mm. Mm. Um, mm. I'm not going to give it an eight. I'm going to give it a seven, all right? Um, oh, yeah, you know, I mean, nice designs. I like the sand miner, but uh, yeah. it, 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 I think it, it loses the point 
because you know it's photography I think if it had been high speed photography slowed down yeah um, it would have been a bit more impressive and I would have joined you in an 8 so uh, no I'll, I'll give it a 7 it gives it 7.5 alright which is fair that's what I was going to give it originally anyway All right. yeah so 7.5 I think that's fine okay alright well thank you Ian no problem and uh, <laughs> we're going to take a, like a 5 minute break now you and I aren't we and, yes, we are, uh, yes. and, and um, we're going to be talking to you again because um, if I can get this episode together properly um, and off to Matt at Neozaz, this will be out on Wednesday. And uh, if you're a fan of this show, anybody out there who may be listening, if you're a fan of Robots of Death or, or interested in it, and Blake Seven as well, in two days' time, Ian and I will be doing another episode on this story. But this time we're looking at the actors of Robots of Death, the actors that went on to appear in Blake Seven. So, yeah, yeah, if you're a Robots of Death fan, Blake 7 fan, join us in two days on our sister show. Yes, yeah, you get a double bill of us this week. Oh, Who well. could ask for more? <laughs> <Yeah>. Poor things. <laughs> <laughs> All right, okay, Ian, uh, thank you. Um, no um, as I say, for you and I, we're having a five-minute break. Everybody else out there, see you in two days. Thanks a lot, then. Cheers, then. Bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>